Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. I'm Bill Whitson, and this is episode number seven. Today I'm talking to Doug Strong. Doug is a potato breeder from western Washington who works primarily with Andean potatoes and mostly diploids. He consistently turns out some of the most interesting shapes and colors that you'll see in potatoes. He also breeds some other plants and animals and is interested in self-sufficiency, so we will touch on all of those topics. So, you breed potatoes, and it, it sounds like you breed other things as well. Do you want to give a little background on that? Well, uh, my, my whole plant started when I was about four years old, and I saw my first sundew growing on some logs at my grandma's house. And those who don't know what sundews are, they're carnivorous plants. So I started growing plants when I was four years old, and by the time I was eight, I got my first bonsai book and began training trees. Um, and then it's pretty much progressed from there. When I was 14, I got into raising uh, game fowl, and I raised till to this day, I have a couple of breeds of poultry that are, you know, pretty much extinct other than my house. Um, vegetables of all kinds. Uh, my family has always been a farming family. You know, my uncle raises sweet corn and, and other vegetables out here and has a small market. He was one of the original uh, farmers at the Olympia Farmer's Market, which is one of the larger markets in our state. Um, so, yeah, I have been involved with breeding pretty much um, anything I could get my hands on for most of my life. So I think I've got a pretty firm grasp of it. Potatoes are a little different, though. Because I have found, I have a couple of lines that, you know, like the 320-370, where you got an idea they're going to be round, goldish flesh, probably, you know, have yellow eyes with a reddish color. But outside of that, when I plant TPS from a berry, it appears as though it's anyone's guess. I mean, I'm, <laughs> they're, they're just, you know, the, uh, the dog series seems to kind of stick with that deep-eyed, large, uh, you know, elongated shape, and uh, the 32370, like I said, you know, gives me the bicolors. But outside of that, um, it's really interesting because you just never know what you get. I mean, you can look at the top of the plant, and it looks like a fairly normal-looking potato plant, and dig down there, and it would be the craziest tuber you ever saw. And then you'll have another plant that just got huge dark, purple blossoms and super duper filigreed foliage and and dig it up and it'll just be like an oblong red skinned russet with plain white flesh which isn't really what works for me <laughs> i'm more of the <laughs> you know flashy colors and then it appears to me i don't know we had a little bit of a conversation uh, the other day on kenosha but it seems to me that um the quote-unquote primitive potatoes. See, I have a little bit of a problem how the world looks at potatoes. We have it separated into your wild potatoes, and then you have your primitive potatoes, which is what's being grown in the Andes by people like Adalberto and, and the campesinos of the high Peruvian Andes. Mm -hmm. And then you have the quote-unquote modern potatoes. And most of the modern potatoes are are really terribly bred. I mean, they've just been selected for a few traits. Most of them are really prone to disease, so I have to be sprayed often and everything else. Whereas you look back at 
what we're calling primitive potatoes, those had been selected for thousands of years for a lot of traits that, as far as humanity is concerned, are positive traits. It may not be the best for a big commercial grow, but so I kind of wanted to go back. Why reinvent the wheel? And so I was able to get, well, as you know, the USDA has quite a collection of TPS. Um, Tom Wagner, I think I had about 42 different um, diploids and other things when he first came here in 2011. And, of course, all you have to do is plant a couple thousand TPS from a few berries, and, and all of a sudden you're in, you know, you're in business. you got more varieties than you know what to do with. I first moved out here to East or to uh, the Ball Hills of Yelm. We bought one of uh, Jay Z Knight's homes, and it's set up to for food storage. Basically, it's set up for the end of the world, which is <laughs> it's a group of people that that's that's kind of their whole deal. That lizard people are going to come out of the mountain, and and a lot of unique unique uh, views of the world. So anyhow, I was stay at home dad, and I was like, well, I know people can live on potatoes. And I had all the sand bottom storage rooms and everything else. So I started looking around, and I saw, I don't know, I think it's with, uh, with the Kenosha group, that iconic Peruvian picture of just all the most colorful potatoes with all these crazy shapes. And I could see they were actual real potatoes, and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I missing out on? Where do I get these? Where do I find these potatoes, you know? So that's when I met Tom Wagner, Chris Homanix, and whatnot. Tom, he was uh, potato rich but land poor, and I was just the opposite. So he came down to my place and um, had a whole bunch of wrinkled up little potatoes with foot long sprouts on them, <laughs> and he, yeah, explained to me how you know they're really hard to tuberize, and chances are I probably wouldn't be able to get any tubers out of them, and you know. The berries are difficult to produce, and I said, well, I don't know. And he was going to come down often as he could and hand pollinate and everything else. So I just, you know, watched what he did, and then every day I would just pollinate. I'd go out and take uh, the stamens off and tap them into a shot glass and then hand pollinate, tag everything. And any flowers that were on the cluster I didn't hand pollinate, I would tear off. Because that's one thing I noticed there was a few times that I've seen things were pollinated and tagged, but those those flowers that were pollinated would fall off, and then it would be later flowers that actually produced the berries. So I could see where it was real easy to mess up. Sure. With with you know, so um, it was a couple of years after that that I just decided there really isn't a good reason for me, at least, to keep track of of the parentage past the berry carrier and so now i pretty much just open pollinate um when i do hand pollinate i just do a mass collection from everything mix it together and go through and then when i do plant tps out i'm just looking for those that produce a decent sized potato and i think that's a lot with big dog being a diploid that produces that well i think that's part of the reason why it's probably become so well known I think the thing you're most famous for is the dog series of potatoes. What is that? Where did it come from? And uh, what's, what's, what's your current work with it? 
Well, when when Tom came down, his what he what he liked what he was trying to achieve was you know the next Burbank russet or whatnot. So he was taking you know Ranger russets and these uh, different typical potatoes and was trying to ingress the wild genetics into them to help with disease resistant and these other other things. And I'm looking at these potatoes going, God, why would you want to turn this into this normal looking <laughs> plain potato? You know, so I was just waiting for him to be quiet and get out of there so I could start my work, you know. Um, so he had one he called Poor Dog. And it was, it looked, like a big dog turd that really hurt on the way out. And that's why he ended up naming it Poor Dog. So that was one of my favorites of the whole deal. And the whole time we worked together, he's just like, oh, what do you do? Why do you want to keep that? Oh, it's the ugliest potato. You know, and I was like, no, I'm telling you, Tom, this is what people are going to want. People don't want a plain potato. They want, you know, and I was more geared towards the home gardener. I, I've never been geared towards, you know, the commercial grower or anything. I'm more for people who want to grow their own food and be able to produce a high quality, uh, highly nutritious product on their own on their own land. That's what I was looking for. So I took the poor dog and began breeding it. I bred it back to Skagit Valley Gold. And and Tom, what Tom was doing, because he bred, it's a stenotomum, which is a high, like from 14,000 feet in, in the Andes, crossed with um, his uh, Skagit Valley Gold, which contains Phoresia genetics from the lowland Bolivia. So it basically has terrible dormancy. And adding the stematomum, he was trying to bring the dormancy of the freezer type and then selecting for flavor and, and whatnot. Because, I mean, his Skagit Valley Gold is probably, I would say, um, one of the best-tasting potatoes that I've ever eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, I got another one from him. It was one of the originals that just the storage was so terrible on it. It was just hands down ten times better. But to get back to poor dog... Um, so, uh, I started breeding a lot of them and, uh, bred it back to the Skagit Valley gold and then searching for ones that kept, you know, the best storage. And that's pretty much where the dog series came from. And it's one of the only things that I line breed back to Skagit Valley gold every year. And, um, I've also created the uh, black hornet came out of that yellow dog a few others that i think are a little better for the home grower their eyes aren't as deep Mm -hmm. um and bigger a lot of people the biggest problem i found with diploids is is the size people don't want a a golf ball sized potato even if there's 35 of them to a plant they want you know a, a good size eight ounce potato and the dog series seems to be able even though well, I don't know. The ploidy of potatoes is something as well that I'm I'm not quite sure whether it's as figured out as people would like to think because I'm, I'm hand-pollinating stuff that probably shouldn't be able to produce berries and getting pretty good success. So I don't know if it's because my genetics are just so mixed up that who knows what the ploidy on them. But So I really don't even know. Uh, if it's a diploid or a tetraploid or, or what the ploidy level of, of most of the dog series are, but I do know 
that they're uh, uh, pretty much disease-free. Everybody I've sent them to all across the country has continued to have good yields, you know, three, four years past getting them. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much the direction I was going is, is trying to produce a good-tasting potato with a good yield and a stunning look. And the only thing I need to work on a little bit is, like I said, some of the uh, um, the dog series don't have the exceptional uh, fragrance when they're cooking. And I mean, they're a good potato. Don't get me wrong, but they're not they're not exceptional in the flavor category. And that's kind of you know why I keep going back to that Skagit Valley Gold, hoping to recapture that uh, really good fragrance and flavor from that type of potato. So. So getting back to Ploidy, yeah, I've never been quite sure uh, about exactly what you're working with. It, but is it your is it your assumption that most of the material that you're working with is diploid, or do you also have uh, have tetraploids intentionally in the mix there? There is definitely tetraploids in the mix, um, and like I said, most of my most of my pollinations, I just mix pollen mm-hmm. in a shot glass from everything. Although I did have some that were, so I had potatoes here growing on the property when I first came here that are definitely tetraploids. Um, at first, I thought they might have just been from, you know, peels thrown out or whatnot, but I can't seem to identify any of the tubers, and Chris Romantics, Chris Romantics hasn't been either. But all of my diploids that I hand-pollinate to those plants produce berries, so... I'm I'm getting berries off of what I am assuming are tetraploids, just looking at the plants, looking at the shape of the berries, looking at the size of the tubers, and the fact that really there wasn't a whole lot of diploids being worked with prior to, you know, Tom, and then, you know, the work that I had done. And you, I believe you probably started your work about the same time, maybe earlier, I don't know. But, uh... So I can't imagine they were diploids, you know. So you are crossing, you're crossing your known diploids to the tetraploids, or the other way? Yeah, yeah, known diploids to the tetraploids. So there, in that case, it does make sense because with with diploids, you get unreduced gametes, at least to some degree, mm-hmm. maybe up to ten percent of the of the pollen. Which is, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good number too, ten percent. Right. So then you would end up with tetraploids that have diploid genetics crossed in. So that's that's totally normal. Uh, normal. And okay. It probably gives you really good, you know, really good tetraploids. It might be interesting to see more of uh, of what you get out of those because uh, you know a lot of the time you get you, you really get some of the most some of the best crosses between. Climate adaptation, yeah, hybrid and flavor, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, between the two. Yeah, well, that's kind of what happened with uh, with poor dog, too. Is taking that lowland phoresia with the high mountain stenotomum, mm-hmm. and then it seems to the uh, size and vigor of that seems to have continued on. <laughs> My biggest problem is I don't I don't keep track. I don't write things down. Um, I have a lot of tubers. There's a few tubers that I'll set aside. I'll tag them. They'll go into special beds or whatnot. But, I mean, I have probably 50 of the dog series that 
or burgundy with yellow eyes and yellow flesh. I mean, other than maybe being fatter at one end or being uniformly sized through the whole length of them or having points at both ends or, or whatever, very small differences. Um, so, yeah, keeping track probably would help because I may, I may very well have a lot of uh, tetraploids that originally started out as diploid just because I have been breeding back to tetraploids and then, you know, my, my breeding actually has been fairly willy-nilly with the potatoes. I figured you never know what you're going to get, so cross up the genetics as best I can and, and get as much diversity as possible, I guess, has been my breeding strategy. Well, that makes sense to me. And, I mean, what what uses record-keeping if you're happy with the results? Yeah, and, you know, my if they make it through the winter and they're still a decent size, you know, haven't totally sprouted out and shriveled up and and whatnot, that's what I breed the next year, you know. And I go through, and, and like right now, the first thing I eat is all the small ones, any small ones, because I found I had a hard time storing them. They ended up just getting thrown away in the spring. I didn't feel like sending them out to people because I know it's hard enough for people to deal with a shrinkled up potato with already got sprouts on it than one that's really wrinkled and really, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are just not going to be able to deal with that situation. And then they'll, they'll feel like they, they got ripped off or whatnot. Don't want that when you're trying to sell potatoes. Definitely. There's a, there's definitely a huge learning curve to working with Andy and potatoes that, uh, I, I think people are just starting to get over that, that hump in general. Yeah, well, you know, and there, there seems to be quite a few people that, I mean, they're so interesting. I mean, the flowers are beautiful. The plants are beautiful. You can plant them right in your, your flower bed, and, and, and they'll be the first plant when people come over. They won't look at your dahlias. They won't look at nothing. They'll go, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. What is it? <laughs> and you're like, oh, those are my potatoes. Like, what? <laughs> so I think that anybody that's grown a couple TPS or have been somewhere that a friend's grown some TPS, um, if they have any gardening inclination at all, they're really interested in doing it themselves. So I think definitely in the last two years, maybe three years, there's been a great influx of people growing TPS. And that includes a handful of people um, that are really serious about it and trying to trying to push it and trying to really get it out there into the gardening community. So I, I only see it getting bigger. Um, I've noticed that a number of the larger seed companies are trying to get in on the whole TPS thing. So that has to mean something, you know, when the catalogs start uh, showing pictures of, you know, dog series looking potatoes and people can buy those seeds. I mean, that's, millions and millions and millions of people are going to be growing TPS. Um, home gardeners are, are a huge, there's a huge number of them. And, you know, Baker Creek, Territorial, um, all those catalogs that get sent out every year are going to be carrying TPS soon. Um, I think that's right. Is that? I think that's right. The interest seems... Um, so... The the interest seems to be into the weirder stuff. They want to put a picture of you know some dog series type things. That's what they're 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 trying to push. So I think the interest is going to be more towards that. Um, I think 
like you said, I've, I've wondered a little bit about, because what they're going to do is like most, most seed companies don't grow their own seed. They, you know, like Romanesco broccoli, most Romanesco broccoli, irregardless of what seed company you purchase it from, is all produced by the same grower. And um, so that's kind of a lot of seed companies go that direction, just produce. So it's either going to be um, you producing TPS for them, me producing TPS for them, or uh, somebody you has no idea what they're doing, gets TPS from one of us and grows out a huge 50 acre plot or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, has, and does hand pollinating. So it's going to be one of those, I think that, that happens first. Um, Cause they don't, they're not going to want to put a bunch of uh, money into an irrigated field and everything else on a product that might not sell. They'll just buy bulk seed from, from, you know, someone like me or you. Um, I just am not quite in the position to, I don't, oh boy. Yeah. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to keep my stuff doing my own thing or whatever, but the fact of the matter is if they decide to do it, they're going to do it. So, you know, it is a bandwagon possibly to jump on. And I do think there'll be some money there. I do think there'll be the, the customers will want to grow a different looking potato. Well, I think the most fascinating part of the deal would be, you know, if it does catch on to any to any large degree, that 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 is suddenly turning hundreds of home gardeners into plant breeders overnight. Yeah, hundreds or thousands. Yeah. you know, I mean, you maybe millions eventually. Who knows? That seems kind of wildly optimistic to me, but it's it's possible. Um, but how yeah. how interesting well, to go from you know what used to be kind of the the heirloom cult where we must have maximum purity to to great interest in breeding completely novel varieties from from seed. That's I, I can't yeah. see that as anything but a positive change. Oh, not at all. And, you know, in the past, prior to uh, all the different hybrids and whatnot being produced, and the hybrids, what basically happened with hybrids, they didn't produce a better uh, quality product. They just produced a product that the home gardener couldn't reproduce on their own but there's been times in our early farming past where especially potatoes um potatoes tomatoes peppers were all things that people took to their county fair they they grew their potatoes and they didn't show nobody and they 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 would bring them to the county fair and some of those potatoes sold for at the time, exorbitant amounts for just one potato. And I think that it's going to go back towards that. Um, I think there's a little bit of a competition even on Kenosha. Uh, people are, are trying to show a cooler potato or a bigger potato or a better cluster of flowers. And that is what's going to really bring it to a forefront is when people, you know, start competing with them and, and um and and as soon as the general public starts seeing these potatoes and then eats them, they're not going to want to go, you know, they're not going to want to go down and buy a, a a sack of potatoes at Safeway. They're just not gonna. It just it's it's hard to go back to those once you've you've eaten a better quality potato. It's just really difficult to go back to for sure. Well, I definitely hope that's true. I I I wonder to some extent because. Potato is a relatively rarely grown 
crop in in home gardens. I think a lot of people, and of course, that's because the potatoes that are available are pretty much all the same and are interchangeable and are so and they're cheap. Yeah, you know, you can buy potatoes at forty nine cents a pound typically or whatnot. So yeah, but I I. And then, and there's a huge amount of people, hobby breeders already with tomatoes, and it doesn't seem that big a step for me, people growing their tomatoes and growing TPS. Um, so that's, that's why I think it could be big. And the whole tomato, the tomato seed industry, I mean, there was tons of people producing heirlooms and, and uh, heirloom-type tomatoes. And they're pretty much stepping on each other's toes now. There's no, there's no money left in the seed production. I think a lot of those people are going to try to jump on the potato breeding bandwagon as well, <clears throat> just to try to bolster their business. Well, I mean that would be that would be great. I mean a future in which we have lots and lots of people growing lots of different crops. The connection <laughs> just got really bad here. Is it my water? I'm I'm out here watering. You might be hearing. Oh, the water. that's probably what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It all of a sudden. Um, I'm looking at some of these plants out here, and uh, the sun's hitting them, and they're like, "No, you need to water now." <laughs> so. Fair enough. <laughs> we can live with that. So it'll just take me a a moment, but sure. yeah. So I got some tomatoes going here as well. I'm I'm looking at. I like the dwarf tomatoes. Um, they end up about four or five feet tall. Whereas, like a lot of my other tomatoes, without pruning, I end up with these plants that are, you know, nine feet tall and ten feet in every direction, and it just uh, doesn't end up not leaving a whole lot of space for for other things, you know. And that's something else, though, with with potatoes. I I think I'm gonna have to start selecting for a little bit smaller plants. <laughs> I hadn't, uh, I hadn't, you know, I I've been you know, the biggest, most healthy plants are what I had been selecting from. And so now, I mean, shoot, and you couldn't have been too far off. I planted TPS a years out of the, the seed train, some of the Criolla Rosada and stuff like that. And from TPS, first year TPS, the last month and a half or so, they really took off. And they're they're chest height. Yeah. Well, every almost everything that I grow is, is short day. So... Mm-hmm. The short day plants just tend to get really huge, and uh, beyond that, the you know I, I tend to select for even even when even when plants have earlier tuberization, I still tend to select for for very very late maturity. So both of those things okay. end up with end up with big big plants. <laughs> Keeps the slugs well, off. See, of them. I, yeah, yeah. I think I'm breeding more towards trying to get a, a quick maturity mm-hmm. um, just because I have issues with water here after about August uh, my cistern sometimes goes dry and it's pretty much done it's harvest time I go about four days without watering here and I'm bone dry there ain't a speck of moisture left yeah we've got basically I think the same climate in terms of uh, in terms of water but I've got a well here so so my, my stuff is yeah. constantly irrigated. But, yeah, often not a drop of water here until the beginning of October. Yeah, well, I'm out here on the plains. It's a sandy, uh, considered Kapalas and sandy loam. And, uh, 
you know, out here in the plains, I mean, it gets hot. It's, it's, uh, eighties, nineties on up a good portion of the summer. And the area where I grow all the potatoes is right up in a reflection zone off of my house and just kind of a heat sink. So they definitely get, you know, I, I find out what's drought tolerant, what isn't. Um, the problem with the real drought tolerant ones, not only do they put out a huge root system, but they tend to put stolons in every direction four <laughs> or five feet. Right. <laughs> so, you know, even in my raised beds, they're going, you know, down below the boards and out into the paths. And um, at this point, my potato patch, you can't even get into. It's just sit and wait. I'm really impressed that you're able to get berries with uh, with temperatures like that. Do your berries mostly come earlier or later in the season, or do you or, or do you just have you selected varieties that that set well even in the heat? Yeah, I, they set well even in the heat. Um, I have like I have I do have some different things that some years they don't produce flowers at all. Mm-hmm. Other years they do, but some years I have I've not gotten any flowers. Um, strawberry timepiece is one of those uh black hornet um it seems like one season the tubers will be tiny and i'll get nothing and then the next season i'll have great big tubers and beautiful flowers so i was thinking i was dealing possibly with disease but you know if it was disease i don't think that the tubers would be able to produce you know big tubers the next year so i think it was more of a cultural thing Mm -hmm. But And then I'll have a few different varieties that they'll produce a bunch of flowers, but before the flowers even open, they'll drop off. And then the majority of, of, of what I think are diploids um, that I'm growing, they don't seem, as long as it's under 100 degrees, um, they seem to set berries. So, uh, and if I get a berry started... I don't have them. They never drop off. They always finish. And would you say most of your stuff at this point includes both stenotomum and Fereha genetics? Um, you know, I think I think there's a good chance of that just because there's poor dog um, and the dog series is 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 very ubiquitous in my breeding. I mean, it, it's definitely um, yeah. There's a real good chance of that. Now that I think about it. So that might help to explain the the heat tolerance. I, I mean, the people tend to report that the Fereja lines have a lot more heat tolerance. And the, the problem, of course, is that they then don't have any dormancy. So you you might be just selecting for both of those, you know, from a, from a diverse population. And that was Tom's plan with putting the stenotomum in there was to increase the dormancy. I mean, he had... Uh, poor dog was the was the one that I think of most with the stenotomum, but he had left like six uh, tubers that were when he brought them they weren't even breaking dormancy yet, mm-hmm. where everything else was all stretched out, and it took them till like August before they even came up. So he left me with like four different lines of stenotomum, but they're just round, burgundy colored. Um, and they've pretty much just kind of got mixed into the, you know, lost in the frame, just pretty much been mixed in. So, honestly, I have no idea what the total parentage of most things here are. 
um, a couple of the dog lines that I know that were hand-pollinated. But other than that, yeah, I'm getting to the point now, seven years down the road, where, you know, that was a good point you brought up. I might have stenotoma and just about everything, everything other than a couple of the clones that I've kept going. Um, most of my TPS probably does have a mix of pharesia stenotomum and um, displanal andegena or, or whatever you would like to call the regular tetraploids. Yeah, so you've got you've got something really unique there. You know, you're you're well down the path to uh, you know a completely new a completely new set of traits for for North America at least. Yeah, yeah, and I I seem to be getting a decent size. Uh, potatoes, even from TPS, if I grew, the year I grew, um, a friend of mine, he wanted to do some perennial stuff. And I said, Hey, you know what? I got these potatoes. Let's do this instead. So we ended up doing a huge grow. I, I don't know, maybe 4,000 TPS. And it was in, he had let people drop all their grass clippings and he had a big tractor. So, I mean, literally there was a a pile of compost that was about 300 feet long and about 20 feet high that when he dug into it was just solid worms. And he spread that out over a really sandy loam soil. And then it had a drip tape irrigation. I mean, it was just perfect. The only problem I had is, um, what's that disease, pink something? They they get it when they're in, in wet soil. And the uh, Jacobson Golden Red Bud from Tom, which is just excellent potato, that one uh, ended up, it just couldn't handle that damp soil. But other than that, I was getting, you know, from TPS, there would either be no tubers at all, um, a big cluster of, you know, golf ball or smaller tubers, or a big cluster of, you know, six to nine ounce tubers. And so I was, that was the year that I really selected for size. And a lot of the smaller things uh, kind of got weeded out that year. And I wish I would have known how to store them better because I kind of miss some of those genetics. But I'm always able to go back to the 2011 seed that I originally bred from Tom stuff and, you know, add that, that severe, that, that real heavy diversity. You know, that first year was the most, I think I had 70 two different tubers from Tom that were all USDA from USDA TPS. Um, so that diversity, I keep, I, every year I, I, uh, germinate a few of those seeds and then use that in my breeding as well. So I just keep mixing, you know, I'm not, I'm not narrowing anything at all. I just continue to mix and make it as, as, as diverse as possible. So I really haven't done any line breeding uh, to try to tighten the genetics. Like with my chickens, I'll have uh, a rooster and two hens, and then I'll start two lines, you know, breeding the, the pullets back to the rooster and stags back to the hen, and then I'll breed between those two lines to keep them from, you know, getting too inbred. Mm-hmm. And with the potatoes, I haven't tried doing that at all. It's pretty much just keep mixing, you know, as diverse as a genetics in as possible, I think is more of the technique I'm using. And so far, it seems to be working out. Um, I like, 
the broad diversity. I haven't got any spitters either. That's another thing with tomatoes. When I was breeding tomatoes, I'd find there'd be times when you get tomatoes, you just can't even eat them. <laughs> and I was really expecting that from the potatoes, that there would be some that just came out really bitter. And so far, seven years, I, I'm not getting that um, using the diploid genetics. Yeah, a lot and of people are really afraid of of, uh, of getting poisonous potatoes from TPS, but it's... I think it's really, I think it's almost unheard of with the, with the Andean types. And, and even with the modern types, it's not, uh, I can only think of a couple yeah. of occasions where I've gotten one that's really, really noticeably bitter. Now you cross in the wild stuff and then, <laughs> then you've got problems. Yeah, I've but. stayed, I've stayed away from the wild stuff. Um, I know I noticed that one, that one of yours that you had that just has a really neat leaf structure and beautiful flowers and i was like god that would look great in a flower bed and i started thinking about it it's like man all it'd take is one good bumblebee year <laughs> and <laughs> so so i was kind of like yeah i don't know maybe i'll because that's another thing that i'm breeding towards too is just the beauty of the plant itself mm-hmm. i mean some of these with the uh black stems with the wings on them and then the filigreed foliage and then the huge clusters of purple flowers. If you grow them by themselves, like I, I do landscaping is, you know, before I became a stay at home dad, that was my main business. Mm-hmm. I ran hard rock landscaping and I was able to take, um, you know, let's say, God, what's a good one. I have a, uh, um, any of the really pretty black stemmed. If you, if you just take one variety and and plant them in the border like a line in the back of some of the taller stuff uh they don't get pollinate because they won't self they're they're self incompatible so those flowers just keep living on living on until the whole cluster they look like hydrangeas i mean just the whole cluster will be open at the same time with none of the flowers dying back and they last for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and you know will continue to just put on a show all the way till frost so I'm thinking, you know, that's a really a direction that I'm going is trying to get people, homeowners, to grow them just for the plant. You know, that way, you know, you could you send out a, a three tuber package or a five tuber package, and and um, uh, just just to to bring up the income, basically. I, you know, I think that's a, um, I think that's a great idea. A, a few years back, I took some of the uh I, I collected seed from some of the most some of the the biggest short day plants that i had with the most beautiful flowers and i i made that available as a ornamental mix i think i sold like three packets of that seed so i haven't done it again <laughs> but i but i think it's a really good idea i think i think there's great potential for potato as as ornamentals people just have to get used to the idea yeah yeah getting them just getting people seeing them and when people see them, they want them. And so, you know, that's the biggest thing is how do you get to see them? I found it like local markets. Um, I have a hard time selling, getting the price I want for like pole starts in a pot mm-hmm. um, just because they don't necessarily see the potential of them. I have to be the best salesman I can. Um, whereas the tubers, you know, you put a picture of, or a video of some tubers and cutting them open or whatever, people see that tuber and it, i mean they sell themselves and i think that these plants um as soon as as 
you know, the uh, the right person takes the right photographs and everything else, and and getting them into a mainstream catalog, mm-hmm. you know, territorial or something like that. I mean, those those companies just have a huge huge number of uh, uh, customer base. Um, I think that's that's going to be the key. And then once people start having them in their flower beds and they get known for that, I mean, look at the uh, sweet potato vines. Right. Um, it wasn't that many years ago you couldn't buy a sweet potato vine for the life of you. And now you can't hardly find a hanging basket that don't have at least one variety of sweet potato in it. You know. That's a great so, point. Yeah. So I think I think it can happen really fast, and especially with there's we I I don't think that me and you are the only one have noticed the flowers and the plants. I think there's a lot of us that are actually selecting towards that. And I have whole breeding beds that basically the flower and the plant color is the main thing. I mean, they produce great tubers as well, but I definitely am focusing focusing towards the the flower bed potato, I guess you'd call it, mm-hmm. ornamental potatoes. So, yeah, I think that's a, another another avenue that hasn't even been tapped at all that, that's uh, got huge potential. Absolutely. What's uh, what's the size of your operation? How many plants do you grow? How many how many new lines do you you know do you do you work on each year? What does what does that look like? Well, um, I've had up to what was probably about a three acre grow. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, I have pull starts that were put out here at my property. Um, on two different portions of my property. It's funny, the ones never, they kind of got hit by a frost, and then they never really popped out of that because they don't have tubers. So if they get, the pole starts to get hit by frost, it can really set them back. And then it's an area I don't have a lot of watering. So those have already, berries have been harvested, um, tubers have been harvested. And then up here by my house at the same time, I put in pole starts, and I just pulled those uh, day before yesterday, and they were six, seven feet tall. Those are the videos I've been putting up. And then I have uh, probably a couple 200-foot rows over at my cousin's, and then I have about 600 feet at another guy. And you know, both of those are irrigated. Um, and have never had potatoes there before. So I usually try to, you know, find at least one or two places where potatoes have never been grown. And um, so, yeah, probably total plants. Um, I know, gosh, I don't know, thousands, quite a, sure. you know, quite a few hundreds of feet. And then as far as new lines, um Last year, I had a problem with slugs, everything else. I started uh, a few hundred different things and ended up with seven new tubers. So everything else got wiped out by slugs or or something else. Um, This year, I started uh, probably only about 10 new things Mm -hmm. and then some seed that I got from you. And I probably have about 10 new plants, and then I have some four-inch pots that have a bunch of um, the most drought-tolerant of the TPS sitting. I mean, they're in full sun, sitting on top of a big pot in a tray. I mean, they're basically cooked every day, and we'll see what those do. But 
I threaten every year to grow nothing but TPS, and I'd like to start doing that. Um, keep a couple of my my tuber lines, but realistically, at this point, there's no reason why I shouldn't just grow from TPS every year. Uh, make sure to have good irrigation to produce as big a tubers in a single season as possible, and go from there. But um, so far, it's hard. Yeah, well, I mean, every year is different. Some years I get wiped out. Some years, you know, I grow so many plants that I can't harvest them. It's, it's always, it's always yeah. something. Um, yeah. What uh, What's your method for growing from TPS? Everybody does it a little bit differently. Well, I uh, just use a, a cocoa core base potting mix, and I fill the you know uh, four inch pots typically up to about a half inch from the top and then I just sprinkle my TPS on it and stir it in with a toothpick just like maybe a quarter inch deep spray with a spray bottle and usually get you know I don't know what my germination percentage is but um, it's rarely spotty you know Mm -hmm. the worst germination I've had is uh, from TPS that was just kind of sitting in a drawer at room temperature and I still, I'm sure, getting better than 50%. And then uh, my first year that I grew TPS real successful on a big level, um, I just took them when they're about two inches tall, you know, in a, a big wad of them and just singled them out and planted them right out into the field. Um, nowadays, Occasionally, they'll end up in four-inch pots and end up tuberizing in four-inch pots. Sometimes they'll get into one gallons. Um, This year, I built a bunch of raised beds, and that's where all the TPS went in. So uh, probably do a lot better with with my tuber production, doing it that way. But, um, yeah, and I do have a couple of raised beds that were set up. They were going to be screen houses. Mm Mm-hmm. But I found uh, my disease pressure. I'm not sure what diseases flea beetles may pass on, but I'm in an area where uh, they grew strawberry plants, starts for years, because it's a really hilly, you know, lots of hills and valleys, so the disease doesn't spread very easy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a lot of the reason why I don't deal with disease. I don't get aphids. Um, I don't get a lot of the different insects that I think a lot of people in a in a lower area would get. Lucky. You know, I'm at the the base of Mount Rainier basically is what I am. I am covered in aphids. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, I've uh, as far as disease pressure goes, I'm I'm pretty good. Flea beetles, uh like I said, I'm not sure what they can pass. They are biting the plants. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. It seems to me that once a flea beetle finds its spot, it hangs out in the same spot unless it's pressured to move. So I don't know if they're really going from plant to plant to plant. But, um, yeah, it's something to, to look into. And, I, you know, other than uh, some of the stuff I sent you a few years ago that you tested, I really haven't tested for disease. Um, I guess... That's one of the reasons why I want to start just going from TPS, because I figure if I do TPS every year, there's a good chance that I can not have to deal with disease at all. Um, Another idea 
that I've had for uh, tuber production for sales is the hydroponics. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of the the more primitive type potatoes uh, work well with that method. So I think if you had a, a way to cure them, because that's one of the biggest problems is those, those tubers come out of the hydroponics and they're not really, uh, they're easily bruised. Uh, transportation would be difficult. So I don't know if there's a way to take them out of the system, maybe put them in trays of soil, and maybe they'll produce a better skin, harden their skin off, kind of like after a vole chews on them or whatever, and they sit in that damp soil, they'll they'll continue to grow and make that skin instead of just drying out. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the, the newer things I think I'm going to work on this winter is doing an indoor hydroponic production of tubers. I think that's a great um, idea. I get requests for tubers pretty much year-round. So, you know, I think that would be a, a benefit to be able to just, you know, harvest tubers as needed. I've, I've seen some uh, some articles about, uh, interestingly enough, how they do uh, what, they're, what they call aeroponics in, uh, in North Korea to, to propagate yeah, seed that's, tubers. Yeah, that's, that's actually what I'm thinking of, aeroponics, yeah. not a hydroponic, but the aeroponics with the, uh, like, a four-foot box. Right blacked out and the tubers just hang in there yeah that's 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 the direction i'm taking something just like that and it's the technology is pretty basic um easily set up uh the the biggest thing i have problem with it is it's hard to do organic you have to use chemical fertilizers whereas now um all of my potatoes are just grown using composted horse manure um household compost you know mixed into the rows before i plant them and whatnot so it is uh completely organic and i i try not to bring anything from off-site unless i really know you know that the people haven't used any broadleaf defoliants um none of the the hay they fed their animals had broadleaf defoliants because that can really muck up the solanum genus it seems some of these uh um, broadleaf defoliants that continue on through the animal and into their compost. Yeah, we use we use horse manure here, and I've had a f- couple of different hookups over the over the years. The the one I have now is great because they don't uh, they don't poison anything, and uh, and that manure is definitely worth its weight. But before that, I got it. I got a load from a guy once that obviously had had uh, had poisoned his field, and it screwed up. A section of my field for like a couple of years after that that was not yeah good i was gonna say you're lucky to have all the rain out there um i think to help clean it up because i've i know people that they're 10 years into it and they're still yeah. i mean there's a lot of things they can grow in those areas but um yeah they're still they can't plant tomatoes peppers uh without seeing severe foliage curling and and everything else so yeah that's something i've always been real careful of um i guess that's the uh, the I, flip side of having all the nutrients washed out of the soil every year so it washes everything yeah else right out too. <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's it's definitely around here with this sandy loam and my uh my property until about june a lot of my gardening areas actually water is just running right through it and I have a cistern, which is basically a 10-foot 
concrete lined hole in my garden that still has water in it now you know that's what i water from nice so yeah so it's pretty much flooded with running water going through it and it pretty much takes everything out of it i have to add add compost every single year yeah last year was terrible here i mean like disastrous we had uh it's very rare but our our field here can flood and it flooded last year and it stayed flooded like well into June, yeah. which is, I guess what you deal with, but normally I'm I, I, exactly it's, that's awful. It may, I mean that, that, and luckily I guess you have sandy loam. So when it drains, it probably drains pretty well. Right. It drains really well when it does. And I'll be honest with you. I had, uh, um, Steve Marple sent me a bunch of garlic and I literally, the garlic, you could see water flowing around it, the moving water. And I don't know that having that water moving and oxygenated saved the day, but um, I was pretty sure all my garlic was going to be ruined because, I mean, it was in, in standing running water for a month, yeah. you know, and not a good, not, you know, not a good time to be that way. And I ended up with one of the best garlic crops ever. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, may some have, things, you may have discovered something there. It's a, it's a new yeah. cultivation method for garlic. I don't know. I don't think I want to retry it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, this year my garlic's actually in between rows of potatoes. And the one thing I'm noticing it is that the uh, shading of the garlic plants by the potatoes. So early on when the garlic was just getting going, of course the potato plants weren't even up yet. It was some tubers I planted. And then by the time it's right about the time that they be, garlic began to flower that the uh, potatoes got up to the height of the garlic and started kind of shading them. And so I'm noticing that my bulbs are getting bigger and that my uh, greens on the garlic are taking longer to die back. And I think I'm going to just end up with uh, even a better crop of garlic this year using, cool. you know, just planting in between the potatoes and letting the potatoes kind of shade the plants a little bit. Because, man, the sunlight out here on the prairie just gets intense. And um, you get that heat, even being on a, in a forested area and on the edge of the prairie, that heat coming off the prairie is just like opening the oven sometimes. You'd think you were in eastern Washington. Yikes! I would melt <laughs> out here at the coast. Yeah. Out here at the coast, where it hardly ever hits seventy. That, mm -hmm. That's that's hot for me. So you have a yeah. you have a pretty unique uh, way of propagating your potatoes. The the term has come up a few times, but there are probably a lot of people who don't recognize it. You want to talk a little bit about that? All right. Well, um, I kind of got the idea from Tom. Mm -hmm. He was, you know had had potatoes that went too far and had been set on soil and he would he would take some and put them in the pots and make some tubers and i was like gosh you know why why don't i just you know and we planted a couple of those and they seemed to produce okay so i was like you know um i had uh i think it was the dog series they have so many eyes and their dormancy is not very good and i was like man uh wonder if i put them in soil if that would help for them to store a little longer. So I put them, these wrinkled up sprouted tubers in soil. And then of course it didn't take very long and I had plants popping up. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm like, God, what the heck? So I pulled them up, and sure enough, the tubers looked like, you know, the day I harvested them. Their color all came back. They plumped up. And so I just pulled the plants, which pop off fairly easily, just popped all the plants off, and I had a bunch of plants. I was like, man, I don't want to just throw these away. And I had some French fingerling and a bunch of, you know, your typical stuff as well. So I just made out some beds, planted them out in the beds, and that year I had mixed a lot of rabbit manure into the bed where I put those and put a lot of little extra care into it. Um, that was my best potatoes. And the diploids were so much bigger. I mean, I had, you know, Jacobson Golden Red Bud typically got about the size of a golf ball. Mm-hmm. And I was getting, you know, baseball size and bigger diploids using the pole starts. So the first, the second year after that, I planted probably 25% pole starts. And then this is the first year and probably four that I planted tubers at all. And it was more of a time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot, got a lot of stuff going on. Wife and I are looking to buy a piece of property, another piece of property and stuff, um, which is going to give a really a neat opportunity because I've also been growing potatoes in fairly heavy shade. Mm-hmm. And even though the plants just get huge and lanky, there seems to be enough plant material that when they do tuberize, they're making fantastic tubers and this is probably i would call it heavy shade um only getting you know direct sunlight about four hours out of the day and then the rest of the time it's just lightly dappled sun so this new property is pretty much under alders and just beautiful soil it's right on a river so i don't have to irrigate the soil stays damp and so I'm going to be doing a lot more with uh, growing them in shade as well. Um, uh, have you grown Oka in shade yet? Yeah, uh, I, I think it doesn't make a big difference where I am simply because we have so much fog through the summer. You know, the, the temperature is okay. cool and, it, you know, we, we have high humidity and the, the plants are all pretty similar, but... Oka doesn't do any worse for me in shade than it does in sun. And I've had people in other climates definitely report that it does much better for them in shade. So if you're hotter, okay. it's probably going to do great. Yeah, my friend of mine out in Shelton, um, he grows it under fir trees right on the edge. So there's a little bit of direct light on them. But, I mean, the plants, they got huge stems, but they don't seem to have much leaves and they're just lanky and long and i uh helped him with his harvest and i mean he's pulling out six seven inch oka Mm -hmm. biggest oka i've ever seen so that kind of gave me the idea of gosh if the oka can do good you know maybe it's just the amount of plant material necessary because a lot of you know like uh the mashua um the tubers are created by whatever foliage you know the more foliage you can grow in a, that amount of time is how big your tubers are going to be and so i figured maybe that was uh the same premise that was going with with the oka could be used with the potatoes and so far i've been successful especially with uh plants that grow really large um i i think that's true yeah. basically of all of all the short day tuberizers, right? Because it's a, it's a race, you know, particularly if you, if you have frosts to worry about, 
then you have a fairly mm-hmm. you have a fairly short period after the autumn equinox where they're forming tubers. So the bigger mm-hmm. the plant is at when you get to that point, the the better a harvest you're going to get because that plant can collect more energy. It has more energy embodied in the above ground plant that it can dump into the tubers. And so big plants are and make are a bigger good. tuber quicker. Right. Yeah. 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 Yes, indeed. Um, so yeah, so that's how the pole starts. Basically, I just take the tubers, I set them on the bottom of a 1020 tray, uh, cover them with a couple of inches of potting mix, and when the plants are about an inch above the soil, I snap them off. And I've uh, this year about half of the plants, even that even when they got fro- hit by frost didn't affect them at all so i was able to find uh frost tolerance and a lot of different stuff mm-hmm. um doing that and if and if the though that first batch doesn't make it those tubers will continue to put out i mean i've had i've pulled oh gosh off of like a, a big dog or painted dog or any of those that have lots of eyes i've literally got a hundred or more plants off of one you know, six, seven inch tuber. So that's great. It's a, yeah, it's a great way for if you just had a, you know, small area, you know, we're doing a couple of raised beds or whatever, and you didn't, you know, you want to eat your potatoes. You only have to keep a couple to be able to, you know, uh, instead of having to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tubers to, to plant an area, you just need a couple of them to, to plant the same area. Awesome. So what else, what else, uh, what else do you work on with, with, with plants these days or with animals? We, you mentioned briefly at the start that you're, that you're breeding other things. What, what are you breeding and, uh, what are you shooting for? Well, I'm working with, uh, corn Mm -hmm. is one of the things and I'm mostly shooting for, uh, a supplementing the commercial feed that I feed my chickens. Um, the corn that's in the commercial feed is just a big yellow, yellow corn, and the amount that they charge for the feed, it's it's just uh, it's just too much. So I started with the uh, some different types of popcorns that have a lot of color, smaller kernels, and are just uh, I feel that they're higher in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so um, and if everything went bad. I'd sure I'd eat the corn as well, but at this point I'm just raising it for, for poultry feed. Um, I have a number of different peppers that I'm breeding, and pretty much my breeding strategy is just towards what works well here. I'm trying to produce food for my family. I mean, that's the biggest thing, and to have a stock of seed because I'll be honest with you, um, life is a surprise. And just like it was a surprise to a lot of people that we ended up with Donald Trump as a president, <laughs> it could also be a surprise when, well, right now, um, I don't know how bad it is out in your area, but if you come out into my area, like let's say you drive between Yelm and Tenino, mm-hmm. um, you have to be blind to not see that all the fir trees are dying. And you have to be blind to not see all of the mature big leaf maple skeletons all up and down the freeway, 
So all the big leaf, all the big leaf maple around here is all dying. So we're looking at pretty much two of the main uh, tree species that I think in the next five years we're going to see 90% of the fir tree population on the west coast disappear. And that's going to be a shock for people. And um, droughts, floods, um, it's not going to be too long, and there's a real good chance that the United States is not going to be able to produce the food necessary to feed our population. And you go to the grocery store now, a large majority of the food is being grown out of country. Mm. And, you know, if you got the choice of keeping your food and feeding your people or sending it to the United States, it's a no-brainer. It's going to stay where it's grown, you know. So I guess, in a way, I'm preparing for an unstable, unknown future and just trying to make sure that um, my family and my community uh, is able to feed itself if, if anything of that nature does come about. And I think there's a pretty good chance. Um, you look around the world and, and see the countries that, uh, I mean, there's riots. Uh, it's just, and, and yeah, and food, that's a big thing. If you, if you don't have food, You'll stand in whatever line you're told to stand in to get to that food. You'll do what you're told to get to that food, especially if you have hungry children at home. And I don't want to be stuck in a position where I can't make my own decisions just because I don't have food. That just seems crazy to me. And so, yeah. So I, I, I guess, um, in a way, I breed tomatoes, peppers potatoes, sunflowers, lettuces, um, broccoli. I'm working with broccoli, which is a particularly difficult crop, <clears throat> just because uh, I love Romanesco broccoli. And the last four years, no matter where I buy my seed, the Romanesco broccoli is not Romanesco broccoli. Some of it's coming up purple. Some of it's coming up more looking like traditional broccoli. Um, so... I'm finding that even my traditional seed suppliers, the quality of the seed is not that good. Some tomato seed I bought this year, um, just because I like uh, Sweet 100s and the Sun Sugars and whatnot, um, now that they're starting to fruit, they're definitely not what they were marked. You know, So I'm having a hard time even, in some respects, procuring uh, quality seed so i figured the best bet to deal with that is to just produce my own one of the only plants i'm not working with as far as breeding is carrots mm -hmm. and i just have such a huge population of wild carrot that it would just be right um it would just it just be too difficult for me to do without setting up a bunch of different houses and stuff to do it in but, yeah, and then I deal with a lot of wild edibles as well. My property is, you know, we have the black caps, the wild blackberries. Um, I'm also dealing with uh, currants, a number of different red currants, black currants, gooseberries. Um, you know, just a diversity, just so if I don't, if I can't go to the store, I, I do want to be able to have a diversity of food. So 
Um, I have chestnuts here, hazelnuts. Uh, Chris Homanix has, has been indispensable in uh, procuring different nut trees and stuff like that. Um, I grow figs, a number of different types of figs. Um, gosh, what else? I've stayed away from, you know, there is a lot of traditional native plants, the camas and whatnot, mm-hmm. but I haven't really found a way to grow that um, in a garden setting to where it's, you know, there's just too many other crops that I can grow in that space that do better. Yeah, um, camas is tiny, uh, hard, hard to deal with. Yeah, the lichthinii are a little bigger, but, um, yeah, I think camas really does need to be grown in a, a large prairie system. And um, But I do, I collect them just because I'm in an area where there's lots of different variety. And I'm not sure, but from what I've gathered, a lot of those different varieties were like different families. That's with how they could tell their plots apart. So, you know, the difference between the Camas and Rainier compared to the Camas and Yelm compared to the Camas and the Bald Hills, um, really variable. And when you do find an area, it'll be the whole area will have that particular, you know, whether one's taller than the other or whether the leaves are decumbent. Um, the ones out here in the Bald Hills, they're not an upright plant. They come up a little bit, and then before they bloom, the leaves lay flat down on the ground like in a star pattern. And they have a lot smaller, the uh, flower stem only gets seven or eight inches, and the darkest, darkest blue flowers I've seen on any camas. And so um, I have uh, been collecting those, and just the proximity, the lecthenai, I do believe I have some hybrids that are between the two. Mm-hmm. And so there is a possibility at some point I might end up having a camas that produces big enough bulbs soon enough to be able to take up some garden space, but we'll see. Cool. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. So you're a, you're a classic subsistence farmer, or at least that's, uh, that's your philosophy. It sounds like. Yeah, that I pretty much try to produce as much of our own food here as possible. I really don't trust the food in the stores. Um, there's just too many times. I mean, just look at the big romaine lettuce fiasco recently mm-hmm. that got people sick all across the country. And, you know, romaine lettuces in almost every, you know, lunchtime salad box or anything, no matter where you go. And the most of it gets grown there in Arizona. So, yeah, I don't know how well I trust a lot of the food coming out of our grocery stores, um, even organic food. It can be grown organic, but the moment it crosses a state line, they spray it with all kinds of pesticides and insecticides and everything else. So it may have been grown organic, but it still can harbor a, a lot of, a lot of bad stuff hmm. for I, you. I hadn't heard that. That's, uh, that, Wow. That would yeah, change the no, complexion of a lot of a times. Lot. That's why, if if you look into any uh, testing where states have tested the organic stuff, uh, you'll be surprised at the amount of, of chemicals and stuff on it. And it's just because they're they legally like if you bring, um, let's say, apples from one area to Washington State, those have to be fumigated and stuff. 
to protect our own agricultural interests. So even if they were grown organic and labeled organic, they get fumigated when they cross state lines or, or, or whatnot. So, yeah, there's a lot of even organic produce out there. Any food you buy from a grocery store should be washed with soap and water um, before you eat it. It shouldn't just be rinsed. It should actually wash like you're washing your dishes or something. Um, I know the human body has the ability to process and remove huge amounts of toxins and nasty stuff. I mean, just look at people that smoke cigarettes all day, every day. Um, but it doesn't mean that it should. And, and the difference between how I felt when I was eating a lot of processed foods and whatnot compared to seven years into eating mostly our own produced food um, is huge. It's just huge. Uh, my bowel movements are different. I mean, everything. So, and I attribute that to the fact that over a year's time, even if you do take the time to buy organic, um, you're eating a lot of bad stuff that your body's having to deal with. So, yeah, um, I guess you're right. Subsistence, you know, right now we're picking blackberries, black caps, blueberries, the last of the strawberries, um, the last of the raspberries. Uh, I got thimbleberries coming on. Um, so I'll be producing all of our jellies and jams to last us through the year. Uh, hopefully there'll be a good nut crop. I collect both our native nuts as well as other ones that, uh, and I've, I spot areas and I go and hit big trees at different places in the fall for nuts. Um, I do a lot of gathering of wild edibles, especially in the spring. There's so many different types of mustards, um, the miners, lettuces, uh, salmonberry leaves and flowers, the blackberry leaves, all of that stuff makes incredible uh, salads. So starting with those early stuff, and that's about the same time that my kale's blooming, which are just like little, you know, uh, broccoli florets, basically. Mm-hmm. And then um, that continues on to right now. I think I missed the harvest the second year in a row, but one of my, one of my favorite things to harvest is the cattail pollen. Now, a lot of people have heard about eating the cattail roots and the cattail shoots and whatnot, but the pollen, if you can get your timing right, I just take the cattail, hang it over paper bags, and just beat it, and the amount of pollen that's produced is just huge. And then I run it through like a silk screen, as there's a lot of little beetles and bugs that also Mm. know that that protein is really good, (laughs) and I sift all those out, and then I freeze that pollen. But you can take it and mix it up to 50%, replace up to 50% of your regular flour in in your pancakes, waffles, or whatever, and it basically gives it the flavor of, uh, like, cornbread, like if you were cooking with cornmeal. And I believe it's uh, over 60% protein, and it's a really high-quality protein. So That's fascinating. I'd never heard of that before. Oh, yeah. Oh, it is so good, William. Um, and, and, you know, if you get into a good cattail swamp, uh, you can literally in a day easily harvest 50 pounds of pollen. So, you know, that's a lot um, of pollen. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a few grocery bags full. So unfortunately the first year I gathered it, I didn't realize it needs to be frozen. It's, it, uh, um, it's just too hard to dry it well enough to, uh, 
keep it from molding. Mm. So um, I just put it in, in, in containers in the freezer and then just pour it out as you need it. Got it. So, yeah. Have you ever met Joseph uh, Lofthouse? I talked to him last week on the podcast. No, I have not. I have not met him, but we've chatted. Um, he's, he's, I've read a lot of his stuff and been kind of following him. He, uh, isn't he, doesn't he, uh, have a high mountain area, high desert? Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys have a very similar perspective on, on, on things, particularly, you know, in terms of your method of farming and breeding and whatnot. So that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think it's, it's, a traditional method of farming and breeding mm-hmm. is what I think it is. I think it's what humans did for thousands of years successfully. And, um, you know, it's it's going to go back to that. I mean, I just can't see uh, things continuing in the direction they are. I mean, it's inevitable that this system that we're, we're living in is going to crash. Um, there's never been a society anywhere in the past. Have you ever read the book Ishmael? No. Well, it's uh, the premise is a, a young gorilla was captured in the 50s and brought into a zoo and basically learned how to communicate with humans telep- telepathically. And a very rich man bought the gorilla and set it all up so it would be able to have a home and everything till it died and the gorilla put an ad out into a newspaper looking for a teacher looking for a student with the earnest desire to save the world and then it's basically how we got to where we are now from a gorilla's perspective <laughs> and it really changed my whole way of looking at things like right now uh, what most people see as progress, uh, a lot of Americans feel that we're, we're the leader in progress. But the fact is we're progressing in reverse, and we think we have this great flying machine, but what we're on is a pedal-powered kind of a glider. <laughs> so we're actually slowly crashing, and... And right now, we're starting to see the skeletons of all the past civilizations um, that came before us, and, and, and all we can do is pedal faster. But the inevitable thing is, is our, our, our machine, it really isn't flying. It's in free fall. Just it free falls a little slower the harder we pedal. So we're trying to make new toxins to keep our food to be able to grow good food. We're trying to, you know, all these, these new scientific GMO this, GMO that, and everything else is, is just us pedaling faster to try to keep this machine from crashing. But the facts of the matter is we're, you know, one disease or, or one, uh, you know, the wrong mountain blows up and the whole world's in trouble. I mean, we can, we can see one natural disaster can change the whole um, you know, we could have winters that last into June. We could have frosts in June. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could happen overnight. And, uh, yeah. Well, so I think happened before, you know, it, it, we, we wouldn't be the first civilization to fall apart. That's for sure. Yeah. Every single one of them, <laughs> every single one of them, there's not one that's standing. And then an, another thing is, uh, how long have we been here? 
you know, people look at the Great Pyramids and all these, the oldest known structures. So did we come out of a cave and immediately build pyramids? You know what I mean? Did we go from from napping stone to creating all these, uh, you know, I mean, look at Machu Picchu and all of these other stuff. I don't think we came out where, where jungle Indians created Machu Picchu. You know what I mean? I believe that humans have been creating on this planet probably for far longer than we can even imagine. But this is the first time in history we're creating things, um, nuclear waste, all the chemical waste. Just, uh, if we do have a real bad collapse, William, whether it's caused by nature or whether it's caused by us, because um, we're all, humans are, are their own worst enemy. We're going to be leaving behind stuff, you know, like a lot of these nuclear waste dumps and chemical waste dumps. They need to be monitored and have people working on them. Um, the pebble mine that they plan on putting up at Bristol, Bristol Bay in Alaska is going to create a pond full of basically battery acid that is going to need to be monitored and dealt with in perpetuity. So what happens if people are not able to deal with these things just because, you know, they're just trying to survive day to day? We're going to be dealing with pretty horrible long-term, yeah, human beings will, will have to look really hard to find clean places to live. And those will be difficult places. They'll be mountainous places. Uh, Yeah, so... I, I do see even my son possibly dealing with a, a if, if you're not prepared for it, a frightening future. Well, he sounds like he's in the right place to, uh, to, to get some uh, training to, to survive in that environment if it should come about. You know what I'm looking at right now, William? The most interesting thing I've ever seen. Oh, I scared him away. A pair of native bees mating. <laughs> awesome yeah you know i mean i have i know that like honeybees you know how that goes about but i've never seen solitary bees mating yeah i just landed over on they just landed over here on the fig tree i the, thought they were some kind of fly at first but no they're a native bee those native bees love potatoes you probably have a lot of them they they do and another thing about native bees is native bees don't mind when honeybees have issues Right. Because honeybees uh, outcompete native bees uh, to a level that's really hard for them to deal with. So that's the one positive with the uh, um, honeybees having as much problem as, as they do is the diversity of bumblebees um, as well as all of the the native bees that use a li- even the little tiniest little holes in wood be surprised how tiny a bees we have as well i mean we've got some bees that are like an eighth inch long that um hopefully we'll continue to pollinate our food for a, a very long time uh, yeah i i definitely i i kept bees for years and I, I noticed after a time that the native bees were so much more valuable in terms of pollinating the crops that i grow most of which are although not north american are, are crops native to the americas and so I stopped, yeah. I stopped keeping bees. And after I stopped keeping bees, the, the populations of native bees just went up enormously. Yeah. 
So I definitely yeah. think there's something yeah. to that idea. Yeah, for sure. The other, the other, the, one of the biggest problems I think for native pollinators is, uh, at least for me around here, uh, those goddamn gypsy moth traps. Mm. They put those gypsy moth traps everywhere, and they catch one gypsy moth in an area, and they BT the whole area. They come in with planes, and they just BT, you know, and they let you know, hey, Thurston County, we're, you know, seeing a... But what they don't understand is it isn't just gypsy moths. It's all leptodopterans get wiped out. It's your, your swallowtails, your skippers, all the moths, all the night pollinators, all of these things uh, get wiped out just to just because of gypsy moths. And it's like, you know, I know that gypsy moths can be damaging, but typically they, even if they defoliate a whole forest, um, birds come in, uh, other things come in to eat them, and it doesn't, it isn't a multi-year thing. You know, typically that population will, will get broke down naturally, and trees can handle a few defoliations without hurting them at all, without killing them. So I think uh, management of our wild areas, I think a lot of the the people who are being educated on how to manage uh, our wild areas, I don't think they know what they're doing. You know, I mean, just look at the salmon. Uh, the people, they're like, oh, there's going to be 21,000 fish in, so we're going to let you keep six adults, sell a bunch of fish. It's like 21,000 fish, there should be... 2.1 million fish in that run, you know, and so uh, the just the management of our wild areas is 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 there's got to be some huge changes, and unfortunately, what is probably going to happen in mine in your lifetime is they're going to move people to the cities. Um, they'll be like, well, you can't live in this area anymore. It's uh, you're gonna ruin the water, or you know what I mean. Well, the yeah. whole it's gonna it's gonna swing the other the the pendulum's gonna go from everybody building their McMansions right on the lake to no one can live within 20 miles of any water source and pretty much put us all into cities and and the only people that'll get to go into wild natural areas will be those people that that's their job that's that's you know their wildlife managers i guess it would be i'm i'm fairly optimistic in general but you know we have some of that around here where you know they're trying they've been trying for a long time to move people away from the moclips river because the you know there are a lot of older places around here have septic and whatnot and uh that ends up going into the river, which increases the level of fecal mm-hmm. coliform, which gets out into the ocean and affects the clams. And the clams are big business, so the goal is to try and get people, you know, kind of backed off of the river where they've been for a long time. You can kind of see mm-hmm. that, that idea spreading over time, you know, and keep increasing that buffer, moving people back. And people have to go well, somewhere, and the, though. And people, the uh, voter base is um uh the city people i call them cityots but we can call them whatever we want <laughs> i guess um 
they're they're the ones that make the calls. They're the they have the voting numbers. So when it gets onto the ballot, you know, we're gonna, you know, tax if you live anywhere because you know a lot of richer people live on on the waterways. We're gonna tax to this level or whatnot. Um, it's all about money, like you said, about clams and whatnot. So I can I could see easily. Uh, them creating laws that uh they're like i i enjoy living in the city you know <laughs> so you know they're they'll they'll be the ones that that uh produce the laws that cause that change well that's you certainly know. there's it's certainly weird. a lot of that in in farming you know people 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 in distant cities you know setting regulations that uh, that that farmers have to live with without really understanding the, uh, the all the details that uh, that go into that. So unfortunately, mm. that's that's just the world. Well, they don't live. understand. They don't understand any of the details. <laughs> well, that's that go into that's it. That's often that's often <laughs> you know? true. Yeah. And the the biggest issue we're having with agriculture is the average person isn't involved. I mean, everybody should at least grow a couple tomato plants, if not you know, a row of beans, you know what I mean? Everybody should be producing some of their own food. I don't care if you just do it on a balcony or, or whatever, because um, the fact of the matter is agriculture uh, on a large commercial scale, um, it, it takes away from nature. It takes away from wildlife diversity. It takes the water to keep those crops watered, which ends up taking away from fish habitat. So the reality is um, how it happens, how it's going to come about, I don't know. But there's going to have to be a smaller population base that is more self-sufficient than it is now for us to be able to be successful. But what we're doing, the plan that we have at this moment, um, is not sustainable and and is definitely at some point in time going to end up in ruin. Um, I am not very optimistic. I'm a very pessimistic person. You're kidding. <laughs> and, and I no no. And I uh I hope for the best and prepare for the worst and um and hope that I don't have to live live through it. Hopefully hopefully it'll be something that happens later on and then trying to do the best I can to help change it. Like uh uh Kenosha Sending uh, TPS to Africa and, and different parts of the world, literally, uh, the Kenosha Potato Project, I believe there are people, thousands of people, eating a, a better diet now than they were 10 years ago, directly uh, due to uh, members of Kenosha uh, sending, uh, sending stuff out and helping helping these people change the way they're growing. Yeah, that is really one of the fascinating things about that uh, group. I should have talked I should have talked to Curzio about that more when I talked to him. There are a lot of people in Africa and various countries that are members of the Kenosha Potato Project and it's really an exposure to a whole different part of the world than uh, you know, than I would have ever imagined interacting with about potatoes. So, that's yeah, pretty fascinating. Yeah, and and the thing is the thing is with a lot of those people is they are subsistence, not I'm subsistence by choice. 
right their subsistence because they have to be there isn't a safe way right down the road and you know a lot of people don't understand to plant an acre of certified potato tubers that's expensive even if you have access to certified potatoes grown in idaho or or wherever you know when you're dealing with zimbabwe and or different places in asia and whatnot they're just simply is not they don't have the money to buy even an acre's worth much less to try to grow 50 acres of potatoes where a small envelope of tps they're in business they're making food they're selecting for their own environment I mean, could you imagine the selective power on 50 acres of TPS? Sure. Yeah. It, I mean, I it's mean, incredible. That's, uh, I'm trying to imagine how many plants that is. That's probably like 200, wait, no, more than that. Yeah, Two million plants? Yeah, a lot of plants. Something of that nature. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the ability to, to select out of a 50-acre plot, and start breeding is just phenomenal. I mean, look what Fanuel and some of those other people have done um, just in a short period, of, in like five years. Mm -hmm. They have produced a number of varieties that are exceptional for their area, you know. And I don't know any other crop that has a diversity that you can that quickly establish productive new varieties to a specific area than potatoes. I just, you know, I don't think it's there. And potatoes are going to feed the world in the future. It's not going to be wheat. It's not going to be corn. It will be potatoes because uh, potatoes have a diversity. They can be grown at 14,000 feet all the way down to sea level. Um, I mean, look at uh, in Iceland and Greenland, some of those places where they're able to grow potatoes. And then you look at, you know, Africa and some of those places. I mean, we're able to grow them from, from the most extreme environmental extremes. Uh, people are able to produce food. I just don't think of any other crop that's like that. Yeah, and it's easier to scale, too, I think, to some degree. You know, with, with, with grains, you often have to grow a fairly large area in order to get the right environment for a for a big harvest yeah. but you can grow a couple potato plants or you can grow a couple million potato plants and uh, it's all pretty much the same thing yeah and you know an acre of potatoes can feed a man sure you know simple as that and there ain't a, ain't a whole lot of stuff that an acre and the thing about potatoes as well that was kind of why i focused on that is not only can you live on on potatoes alone but you can work on potatoes you can reproduce on potatoes you know it's nice to throw some eggs in there and some greens every now and then but if you don't have that available um humans can survive and prosper on just potatoes you know and i don't think there's any other crop on the planet that you can stay healthy eating just that one thing yeah, if you read the accounts prior to the famine in Ireland, they say things that, like, uh, men working the fields were eating as much as, I think it's... Ten pounds a day. Or, or even more. I think it, they, that they top out at, like, 12 to 14 pounds. Those are probably larger men. But still, imagine eating... Yeah. Imagine eating 14 pounds of potatoes in a day and then mm. doing that day after day. I mean, it's amazing that you can <laughs> stay healthy, but it's also amazing that you don't lose your mind. As much as I like potatoes, that... That's uh, that's commitment. Well, 
but potatoes are naturally one of those things that that you can eat in bulk. Not everything, you know, for whatever reason, uh, people don't really get tired of a big pile of mashed potatoes, right. you know, and um, it's so so that's one thing about it is you know. Um, and of course, if you're growing potatoes, you, you you probably should have some cabbages and some onions and stuff to go with it. Hopefully, we won't ever get stuck to where we're eating nothing but potatoes. But it can be done. Right. Right. So yeah. Well, this is probably getting towards a good place to wrap it. That's what I was I was thinking as well. So I guess first of all, uh, is there anything else that uh, that you want to cover that we haven't talked about? Um. Well, be kind and help your neighbors and try to teach your neighbors to grow food and we'll all get out of this thing alive (laughs) awesome awesome so and then i guess that's about it that's great where where can people get your stuff where can people learn more about what you're doing where can people get in touch with you if they want to well um you know i pretty much am on facebook and i pretty much deal with kenosha potato project i do uh, a little bit of stuff on Dean's PKS uh, tomatoes and more site as well, but mostly with Facebook. Um, a lot of my, I mean, I've already started sales, mm-hmm. and it's mostly people just contacting me through private messaging, asking whether I have tubers available, and I usually do. And and if I don't have tubers, I have TPS. And then during the fall, winter, and spring, um, occasionally I'll take pictures and and advertise. And so far, um, it's been very successful. I did have a website for a short period of time, and I and I'm planning on getting a website again. But I just uh, got so much going on. I also cut gemstones and make jewelry and run a farmer's market and deal with mineral specimens and lots of stuff like that. So it's been hard for me to get a website together. But I have sold every tuber that I had to sell every year since I've started. Um, That's a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be fairly uh fairly successful as far as that goes so yeah if you want potatoes or genetics all they got to do is is just pm me on facebook and i get back to everybody uh, next day and hopefully i'll have a, a website sooner than later and when i do i'll i'll uh i'll uh make that public and i'm sure you were always real good about advertising for me as well so They'll be able to see it on your your page as well. Well, and I will put links up to all of this with the with the podcast when it goes up, so people will be able to find you. So that's great. And I'm talking to Chris Hellmanic next week, so awesome. it'll be an interesting back to back. Yeah, you know, Chris is uh, very knowledgeable. He's um, uh, a smart dude. I like him a lot. I consider him uh, one of my close friends. Um, one of the only people who is, uh, you know, welcome to stay at my home anytime. So yeah, awesome. that says that says something something about him. So yeah, and he has got a lot of stuff going on. I wish he would be able to find a really good farm to stick with, and 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 if he when he as soon as he does, as soon as he finds stability, you're gonna see a lot of stuff coming, exciting stuff coming from Chris Lomannix. 
Um, yeah, it's hard to move. I, it's really hard. All right, William. I guess I should start my day. I got to go cut firewood in the heat. You know, that's when you got to do it, when it's at least 80 degrees, full sun. <laughs> Good times. All right, well, uh, we'll take care, and I'll, I'll let you know as soon as this goes up. That's it for this episode. We should be back in about a week, I hope, with a, another Q&A episode. And then not too long after that, I think I'll be talking with Chris Omanix, who is a breeder, collector, farmer, and... Uh, uh, extremely well-connected guy in the Pacific Northwest. So those should take place in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Thanks for listening.